welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries, where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I am Richard Ring. I am the Deputy Executive Director of the Rhode Island Historical Society, uh, the Deputy Executive Director for Collections and Interpretation. <laughs> the longest title I've ever had. Um, my pronouns are he, him. Hi, I'm Kelly Kwiowski. I am the owner of Rarities Books and Bindery down in Wakefield, Rhode Island. I am a bookbinder by trade, specializing in the preservation of antique books and paper documents. Thank you both so much for joining us here this week. Um, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about book collecting slash book binding and book preserving. Uh, but before we get into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? Um, I read a lot. I'm a librarian and that's just sort of part of my trade. Um, I read a lot of genre fiction as well as nonfiction. Um, and so I can talk for a long time, but I won't. So uh, the most recent things that I've read, Terry Pratchett, his Discworld series. Um, he's an English sort of humorist. Um, and uh, I, I read two books out of the order and then most recently went to the first book, which is The Color of Magic. Um, and I also enjoy mysteries and uh, recently started um, Archer Mayer's uh, series focused on uh, his detective, Joe Gunther. It's uh, set in Vermont. The author is actually um, an investigator for the Vermont State uh, Medical Examiner's Office. I always find it's really fun to have a fiction author that knows so much about the subject that you, you really learn. So um, his first novel, Open Season, I just read and recommend highly. And someone who's going to get that New England vibe, right? Right, exactly. Because <laughs> sometimes you could tell when people write about New England, but they're not from here. So what about you, Kelly? What have you been reading? So I've been kind of in a bit of a reading funk, uh, trying to get the store open and, uh, and everything like that. Um, currently, I'm reading Stephen King, uh, Lisey's story. I wanted to get into something a little psychological and a little spooky because I love that kind of stuff. Um, and I also just recently finished reading The Lost Girls. Um, it's written by Jordan Wakefield. He is an author here in Rhode Island. Um, he actually lives only a few doors down from my store. So he's one of my local authors that I carry. Um, it's a dark thriller. It's a young adult dark thriller. Uh, very well done. Just the right amount of spook um, to kind of, you know, give you the chills a little bit. It was, it was very well done. So trying to make those like fall spooky vibes happen even if it's still kind of warm here oh yeah <laughs> um so i have been reading rereading re something actually um i'm over halfway done with why the last man uh which is a graphic novel series that is Oh, like close to almost 20 years old now. I think it takes place in like 2002 or 2003. Um, and the premise of it, so warning people who don't want to read about plagues or pandemics while you're in one, uh, maybe skip this one for now. Um, but the premise is that uh, a plague hits the world and all creatures with a Y chromosome suddenly die 
except for one young man named Yorick and his capuchin monkey, Ampersand. Um, story unfolds after that plague happens and what happens to the world. And this young man uh, teams up with a agent of a secret uh, government agency who has been tasked by the president to help get this young man to a researcher who can possibly figure out like why they survived and and like kind of he's like trying to basically contribute in whatever way he can to the continuation of the human race um but i started rereading it in anticipation of the show that fx is making so it's going to stream on hulu as part of like FX partnership with Hulu. I think I'm going to wait a little bit to watch it and finish my reread. Um, but I'm very excited to see what they do with it because I always felt that the graphic novels were very cinematic. And like sometimes I just get into a groove reading it and it kind of feels like watching a TV show almost. Um, so I'm excited to see what they do with it. I hope they do it justice because I did really enjoy the series the first time and I'm enjoying the reread. Um, so I'm excited to see what they do with the show. That's how I was when they did uh, the miniseries for Good Omens, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. And it was so oh good. I was so excited. See, that was one that I never read the book, but I decided to watch the show because I love David Tennant and um, and Michael Sheehan. So. And I enjoyed the show, but I have no like frame of reference to compare it to the book. But I've, yeah, I've heard most people say that it's a fairly faithful adaptation. I think partially because Neil Gaiman was involved in the the script writing. They they nailed it really well. And they announced season two. Oh, getting excited for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think this takes us kind of into our discussion about what you all have been watching. Um, so. Have you guys been watching anything that you've really been enjoying lately? Does The Price is Right count? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the last... I couldn't even tell... Uh, my husband did a movie date night here last week for us and had me watch Misery. Stephen King's Misery. We actually watched it during that crazy thunderstorm that came through, so that was a lot of fun. <laughs> But I think that's really the last thing I've watched. I don't even know. Well, I've uh, I do belong to a little movie group. We meet every week. Um, the most recent movies we've watched um, were uh, Far and Away, a 1992 movie, I think, with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um, I love the score. It's a Ron Howard film, and it's a John Williams score. And um, what I love the most about that movie is the um, the scene that they shoot uh, depicting the Oklahoma land rush from 1893. And it's a massive, uh, something like 800 horses and 600 people over a quarter mile stretch of uh, uh, sound stage, essentially. But it is a really great scene, probably one of the best scenes of, you know, of depictions of that in film. Um, and uh, the, the classic movie, The Great Escape, which is one of my favorite uh sort of classic war films based on a true story. Um, and recently I've been streaming net Netflix. Uh, I'm a big Lucifer fan. So I just particularly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, totally there for angels and demons. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah. My mom's been watching it and it seems like almost every time we talk, she'll be like, I don't want to keep pestering you about watching the show, but like, it's so good. 
Um, and then, and the new season of the final season of that just came out like last week. Right. right. I just recently watched season five yeah. and then season six just came out and I have to say that it's gotten quite campy, but I don't mind that either. So <laughs> it's definitely, yeah, sometimes that's definitely fun. not taking itself too seriously. <laughs> yeah. I know my mom was like, even if you don't watch the show, you should go and watch the musical episode that they did because it's so good and it's so funny. Um, so yeah, it seems like towards the end they were they were having a lot of fun with making that show. Yeah. Um I've kind of been on the same shows a lot recently, so don't have a lot new to add there, but um I have watched some new movies. Uh so one of the movies that I watched fairly recently is Bad Times at the El Royale. Jeff Bridges was in it and the guy from Mad Men, that name escapes me. He was in it. Um and Dakota Johnson was in it, but it was set in like the late 60s, early 70s um, at this hotel that's half in Nevada and half in California. And um, and it's all about these group of strangers that meet at this hotel and they all kind of have secrets that they're trying to hide and um, and the events unfold from there. I don't want to give too much away because it's kind of like... Lots of reveals are happening with each character and you see like, oh, here's what was happening while this other, like, we're going to take it back a little bit to show you what was happening while this other scene was happening, like at the same time, a lot of like that and a lot of moving parts, but I thought it was really well done. Um, It had um, like a lot of music in it from the time. And I just thought it was really interesting. All the characters had like a really compelling story, even if they weren't super likable because you know some of the things they had to hide weren't always the best things that they did it it's it still you still felt a lot of sympathy for them and, and the things that they had went through so it's a really interesting watch if anyone is looking for something that like has some pretty big stars in it but i don't think got as much attention as maybe it uh it could have and we'll return to the show after a quick break Looking for a movie to watch? Canopy has over 30,000 feature films and documentaries for you to stream for free. Log in using your Cranston library card and receive eight free play credits each month. That's eight movies every month that you can watch for free. You can watch the 2016 Academy Award winning film Moonlight, Taika Waititi's horror comedy, What We Do in the Shadows, and many more films today with Canopy. Go to cranstonlibrary.org and click the slider that says online resources you can use now to find the link to sign into Canopy today. Cranston Public Library is pleased to bring poetry to our patrons all without leaving the comfort of home. No internet, computer, or smartphone required. A recorded poem read by a CPL staff member will be available every Tuesday afternoon. To listen, Call 401-900-1090 and be sure to check back weekly to hear what's new. For more information about this service, please visit cranstonlibrary.org slash on the line.
But yeah, so without further ado, I want us to have enough time to talk about what we came here to talk about, which is old books <laughs> or book collecting and book preserving and all the things around uh, books that have maybe been around the block. Um, so uh, Kelly, why don't we start out with, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, rarity books? Sure. Um, so I started Rarities Books and Bindery as, um, just Rarities Bindery about four years ago now. Um, I, I wanted to get involved working with books after I had my kids and, um, started taking book binding classes up in, um, Boston, North Bennett Street School and, um, the Creative Arts Workshop out in New Haven over by Yale, um, I, I just, I really wanted to get my hands on books and, and do something with them that wasn't just reading them for my job, because I knew that that would kind of take the fun out of it. Um, I had also always had a love of very old books and, and was starting to collect and that kind of thing. And so I was kind of like, you know, if I could do something with old books, that's where I'd really want to be. So, you know, you got to kind of to fix old books, you got to kind of know how they're made in the first place. So it started with the book binding classes, learning how they're made and working my way into preservation and conservation work. Um, and then I started Rarities Bindery four years ago as I was slowing down and taking classes. And um, I had the workshop out of my house. Um, and then in January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit, I moved it from my house to the Shady Lee Mill in North Kingstown. Um, I was getting more uh, conservation jobs coming in and needed kind of an actual place where people could bring their books or documents or whatever they were bringing. And then previously, previous to moving into Shady Lee Mill, um, my husband took me to the Rare Bookstore um, on Kingston Hill over right across from URI. And the owner, Allison, and I hit it off really well. Um, and a few months later, it was actually right before I moved into Shady Lee's, um, she contacted me asking if I wanted to learn the um, the art of the rare book world and, and dealing in rare books and use gently loved. I don't like the term used books, but gently loved books and and things like that. And um, so she closed her store in 2020 because of the pandemic. And she spent time really just taking me under her wing and training me. And um, recently, as we were planning to reopen the store, um, we were told that the owner of the building of the Kingston Hill building was um, looking to sell. So I found a location um, on Main Street in downtown Wakefield um, that is adjacent to a cafe, which is awesome because coffee and books, perfect. Um, and I ended up moving it there, moving the bookstore there and, and pretty much running it as, as mine now, as Rarity's Books and Bindery instead as she's... Um, going into her retirement now since they sold the building and whatnot. So now it's a little bit of everything, rare books, antique books, vintage books, book repairs, um, documents, maps, prints, you name it. It's what I'm working with there now. And so the, the bindery part of your business are, are most of your clients just people looking who have like 
regular everyday people looking to repair a book or or a handful mm-hmm. of books or is it more like organizations that are looking to preserve um it's mostly individual people with with family heirlooms um i i get a lot of family bibles that have you know traveled over generations to from one family member to another to another to another um i don't get a lot of organizations it's you know, I, I, I offer my services to organizations frequently um, at, you know, a, a lower cost, especially nonprofits, because this is this is history. This is their history that we and it needs to be preserved. Unfortunately, book binding in general is not the um, most affordable <laughs> thing in the world, um, depending on the age of the book, the size of the book, the damage of the book. Um, there really needs to be a lot of sentimental value in the item. And, and I got a lot of families that have that, you know, you know, a lot of families who recognize the importance of, of the heirloom that they have and whatnot. So it's, it's, it is mostly individual people. I think that touches on something and, and Richard probably has a lot to add to this, but touches on something that a lot of people I think don't understand about books um, is that, Books like do have a lifespan and they were they're kind of like the books themselves as artifacts are were kind of made to be disposable in a sense. Cause like, you know, to preserve that information you just print more books. I don't know. Am I digging myself in a hole that historical people are like, oh, no, I, this is such a public librarian perspective. I'm sorry. Because a lot of the stuff we see isn't worth any. I guess the actual physical book isn't worth anything. The content of the book is worth so much. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. This I don't know if you're I'm making <laughs> enemies on the podcast stage. <laughs> no. This is the first time this has happened. <laughs> Both Richard and I are sitting here going, <laughs> just like I've seen a lot of controversy over weeding recently, where people are like, "You can't throw the books away. You can't weed them." And it's like, but we we only have finite space here. Do we? You know? Do we? Let's let's talk about <laughs> let's talk finite about finite space that. at my library. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. So, okay, so what is the historical perspective on it? Because I'd love to, I'd love to hear the the historical perspective on it. Well, I mean, in many ways, uh, places like the Historical Society and large research libraries are what I like to call the evidence rooms of history. So, at a public library, of course, you're going to have a premium focused on people who are consuming. But you know, in an archive, we're <laughs> we're on the other end. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I would say 90% of our readers look at 20% of our items. And that's that's true in, in large university settings. So, I mean, I mean, um, if, if, if it's okay, I'll, I'll just give a little bit of my background and then I'll and then I'll get into this because it's very interesting. Um, so I went into this sort of as an English major wanting to be a you know English professor. Um but then realizing that I didn't like the kind of scholarship that I was, you know, asked to do. And so um, one of my professors said, why don't you try libraries? I think you're, a, you know, you're all about books and et cetera. And this is when, this is pre-internet <laughs> for the most part. So, um, I mean, it was, it was right edge. It's the early nineties, right? So I'm, um, I'm at Ohio state. My professor says, uh, let me, I want you to, talked to this curator in Indiana um, of rare books. 
I talked to him. I, I decided to go to get my master's in library science at Indiana and my first job. Um, and that was a wonderful experience. I mean, um, you know, when you have seven floors of rare books, including a Gutenberg Bible, four folios of Shakespeare, all of the rarities that you could possibly imagine basically bought by this, um, by one of the Lilly, uh, you know, Lilly Pharmaceuticals, Lilly family. Uh, so he had money, he had time, he had, uh, you know, lots of people helping him choose the right, the right sort of books, quote unquote, in the 40s and 50s. So anyway, lots of wonderful things. So my first job was at the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University. And so I was there for 10 years. Um, I was then at the Providence Public Library Special Collections for three years, and then at uh, the head curator at um, Trinity College in Hartford, uh, which has a wonderful collection of rare books, over 200,000 volumes, such a huge collection for such a small school. And then recently in 2017, for the last four years, I've been at the Historical Society. So lots of different institutions collecting for different, you know, basically some institutions with quite a lot of money, some uh, and, and a very tight focus, a collecting focus, some with um, lesser uh, and more general. And so um, so that's I kind of come to it from an institutional perspective. And um, and and all of that is fascinating because who are you collecting rare books for? You know, um, for the most part, most of my career, um, I've been collecting for research and scholarship. And that's that's generally the case. But most private collectors collect for their passion. They collect uh, and that that really is and should be uh, the case. Uh, some people have, have asked me, well, should I collect books or rare items for as an investment? <laughs> and I say, well, absolutely not. If you wanted to, if you want a vehicle for money, books, art, th that is not the way to go. Do it for the love because uh, chances are the fashions of today will be different when you're ready to sell them. <laughs> so unless you're, unless you're buying the highest end material, and even then, it's no guarantee. I mean, Kelly mentioned Stephen King. Stephen King first editions in the 80s were skyrocketing. Now, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Yeah, I think that was more what the, I was trying to get at, is like a lot of people come into it thinking that there's like a lot of mo mo more monetary value assigned to certain things than there is. And so Kelly's saying about there needing to be a lot of sentimental value behind it for it to be worth putting in the investment to have something rebound or, or repaired or anything like that is, is more what I was trying to get at uh, with my earlier statement. But and, and I'll throw in there too that, you know, a, a lot of times age, the age of a book has nothing to do with it either, has nothing to do with value. You know, I mean, I have, I have books in the store that are early 1700s to mid 1700s and, you know, I have people who come in and they'll say, okay, what's the oldest book you have in here? And I say, it's, if I remember correctly, it's 1711. And they're like, oh, that must be worth a lot of money. I'm like, no, it's 40 bucks. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not a popular topic. It's, you're looking at so many different variables about, of, of what makes a book valuable. There's so, so many different, you know, you know, whereas I have a book that's from 1970. So that's relatively new, but it was illustrated. It's a, it's a Bible and it was illustrated by Salvador Dali while he was still alive. And so that right there is going to get 
quite a few more dollars than the 1711 that's beautiful and smells great and it looks gorgeous but it's not it's not a topic of value and the earliest books are in generally in languages that most people can't read so sure you can have a 15th or 16th or 17th century book but if it's in latin or dutch or greek um you know then it becomes this object that the, if you know a lot about it and you can talk about it, that kind of has some value. But if you can't interact with it in any meaningful way, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, the value goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless it is, again, some icon, you know, uh, it's iconic value. Yeah. Anybody know anyone who can read Gothic German? I've got a set for you in the store right now, but it's Gothic German. I don't... <laughs> You know, it's, it is what it is. You you find there, there are people out there for everything. And you find that in the book world too, that there, there are people out there for everything. So it's just a matter of finding them and finding that niche. And we often, we often get um, talking about finding those and the effort that it takes and the labor. And that's what you, that's what you pay your dealers for. And that's what they, they do. People say to me all the time, well, I've got all of this stuff that my grandfather, grandmother, whatever, I mean, you know, somebody dies, somebody gets divorced, but mostly it's death uh, that generates a lot of material that, that, uh, and they say, well, it must be worth something to somebody. And of course it probably is, but you have to figure how much time it's going to take you to find those somebodies um, at the right time. It's not even finding them, it's finding them when they're ready for the material. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to people who come to the historical society looking for, um, for guidance about, about their own personal collecting or collection? Um, how do you usually handle those requests? I mean, I've been offered, um, stoves, boats, houses, as well as plenty of books, family albums, wedding dresses. I mean, I get offered something almost every working day. Um, and, uh, I, I really wasn't prepared for that amount. I've, I've worked in the used book business. I've, uh, I've been, you know, uh, working in libraries for all my life, but this, um, this particular uh, position comes with a tremendous amount of stuff because we, because we collect everything, furniture, anything related to the history of Rhode Island and Rhode Islanders love their history and they can't stand to throw it away. So here we are. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I often have to be, um, quite diplomatic, quite gentle. This, this stuff means a lot to people. Um, but it just so happens that there are 450 other history and heritage organizations in the state that also maintain collections. So um, we're not the only game in town. We're just what everybody seems to think about when they think of, about Rhode Island history. So since we've got it in our title. Um, but I do it as gentle as possible. I cultivate relationships with other um, institutions so that if it's a Bristol thing, then I call the Bristol Historical Society, et cetera, um, and, um, and just negotiate through it. What is like the most interesting thing that you've had someone donate that you actually were like, yes, this is a good, uh, this is, it should be included in our collection. There's a lot of stuff. The thing that pops up immediately in my head is this guy who bought a house and found in the house a uh, folio that's about, I mean, almost almost two feet tall um, uh, ledger. Uh, it was an intake register for the uh, state prison. 
And so some wonderful, uh, you know, recording of all the people that they took into the prison, who they were, where they lived, what they had on them at the time, what they did. Um, fascinating. I think it was a 10 year span from like 1895 to 1905. Really great. Yeah. That kind of, awesome. I mean, it's just, it's just like, Holy cow. Um, but we've also had um, Native American deeds, like deeds that signed by Native Americans, you know, in the 17th century, given to us. Um, God, I mean, I could go on and on and on. It's so fascinating. Um, but yeah, there's, it's just every day, there's something different. And uh, Kelly, is there anything else about book binding and preserving that you would want people to know? You know, there's, there's a lot to know about book binding and, and preserving and conservation. It is a um, it is a very lost art form that is somewhat starting to make itself known again and, and make a comeback. But it's also something that is very delicate, very time consuming, and in a lot of cases, very tedious. I'm booking out into January right now because I only take three jobs on a month because there's supplies, very specific supplies needed for this Bible as opposed to that Bible, to this type of leather as opposed to that type of leather. So with all these different aspects that go into it, it's it, it can be fairly mind-boggling. And, and that's where the time, the patience, the finances all end up needing to kind of meet and and take part in figuring out how how we're going to do this how are we going to make it work um you know one simple repair could cost you know could cost 150 dollars and and take two hours to do a more detailed one it can go up into the thousands and it can take weeks to months to do depending on the damage and depending on the age and the materials it's just it's a vast study and it's a vast practice I mean, you got to love it, though. <laughs> I do. I love it. It's, you know. It's true. I mean, it's one of the last great handcraft, hand, you know, sort of hand um, labor intensive. Uh, I have nothing but respect for bookbinders. Um, and I wish institutions did more bookbinding. Um, it just doesn't make sense with the volume of material that we have to, you know, I mean, we, we'd have to employ scores and scores of binders at quite a lot of money. And the fact of the matter is, is that it, for the most part, we're not, at least in special collections, the kind of wear and tear that generally happens to a, a normal book doesn't happen in our, in our areas. And uh, when you re rebind a book, there's some physical information that's lost. Um, now, sometimes that it doesn't matter because if it's a 17th century book and a 19th century binding, well, then, I mean, unless you want to keep the 19th century binding for some reason, uh, like the time that I acquired a second folio of Shakespeare that really needed to be rebound, that was a $5,000 job. Um, and it was it was pretty intense, but it was worth it because I wanted students at Trinity to use it. You know, I mean, they I wanted to teach with it, but, you know... Um, that kind of care is really a boutique um, kind of a service at this point. Maybe I should change the name to Rarities Books and Boutique. <laughs> <laughs> how about people book, might think you sell clothes or something? How about a book, a book boutique? Send your book to the boutique. Yeah, it's a spa for books. Exactly, a spa day for your book. <laughs> Richard, we might be onto something here. I think we need to talk more. 
That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> so Richard, is there anything else that you want people to know about the work that you do at the Historical Society? I mean, I, uh, honestly, I'm more interested in what what kinds of books Kelly is, has uh, has has dealt with and worked with, and what's the most like what's the weirdest book you had to work with. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't come across really weird yet uh, because I personally myself am very weird. I would love to get my hands on one of the ones uh, up in Boston that's bound in human flesh at some point. Um, I go to Boston, you can go to Providence. They've got at least one or two of them at the John Hay Library. Yeah, I thought they did too. I could, yeah, yeah. But at some <laughs> point, some point I'd love to do that. Um, so I haven't really gotten anything weird. I, I think one of my most favorite ones it was a family Bible and it had just completely fallen apart. So it was a full rebind. Um, and that was, it was one of my first jobs too. So, and that was pretty amazing. Um, you know, I get most of the repairs that I get because I, I like to practice conservation over restoration. So if it has, if you bring me the book and it has the original covers and they're still usable and it just needs a new spine, I'm going to use those covers and I'm going to color match best my ability to make the new spine and keep as much original as possible. So, you know, there hasn't really been anything too crazy or out of the ordinary. Um, one of my favorite was actually a, a Quaker um, book of minutes from the early 1800s that just needed a, a little bit of TLC, a little bit of cleaning. That was fascinating flipping through that. Um, and another one was actually, believe it or not, it was actually a box that I made because with preservation, I do make enclosures for books, documents, et cetera. And um, I had one woman bring me her grandmother's book that she actually painted herself and designed all the artwork and everything when she was in high school. And it was the coolest box I think I ever made because I made it so that the top actually had um, a window. So she could still leave the box out so it could still be displayed on the coffee table, but you could still see the book, not just the box. And it was, that was, I think, one of my, I'm not a huge fan of box making, but that one I really liked. Yeah, when I was at Trinity College, we had um, bought a, a, a beautiful set um, of original watercolors. They were actually painted, they were birds, because we had a big, we had a, when you when you work for institutions, often you will have funds for very specific types of books. Donors will give you money to buy specific types of books. So we had an ornithology collection and we had an endowment. And so these were gorgeous, small paintings, but they were actually on, not on paper, but on incredibly thin slices of wood. And so they, you, they were so thin that you, if you held them in your hand, they started curling because of the heat in your hand. Wow. And so, exactly. And so they were gorgeous paintings we had to stabilize them in some way that we could use them. And so we had a binder, uh, a box maker, uh, make up this system of little, you know, she basically matted them. Mm -hmm. um, but in in these sort of reverse, you know, do everything reversible if you're in conservation, et cetera. And uh, they were, it was just gorgeously done um, and, you know, just really wonderful. But you couldn't handle them. You just couldn't handle them because they were too delicate. Um, so... Yeah, I, I get a lot of items that come in that I, I have to explain to their owners that, yes, I can I can do the repair and I can make it, I can put it back together. 
it's still going to be fragile. I mean, if you were 300 years old, 200 years old, and, and you needed something fixed, you were still going to be fragile too. It's no, you know, it's no different when it's it's a book or a box or or any of that. It's And yet it's amazing what they can do, uh, what they, people who have lots and lots of institutions who have lots and lots of money, apparently there is a machine that can split a piece of paper 17 times edgewise. You know, I mean, that to me is is just amazing. Those kinds of technologies, the, the, uh, the bigger universities and the bigger conservation labs can do uh, mind-blowing things. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but. Well, I know that we probably could talk about rare books and book preservation and repair for, for hours more, um, but I want to be respectful of both of yours time. So we will wrap up with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish-related question, um, just to chat about it a little bit. Um, and so I thought that both of you, if, if you don't, that's fine, but if bo- both of you might have interesting answers to this question, which is, what is the last book that you bought? Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I buy them by the stack as well. <laughs> just showed us a nightstand pile that rivals even the highest <laughs> mine has ever gotten. It's, it, it's actually impressive how high the, the nightstand pile is. I'm just waiting for that to collapse on me. <laughs> I, I really couldn't. I can tell you what the last book I bought is. Every single one in the store. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, you, as, a, as a book buyer with the intention to sell, yes. obviously you buy a lot of books. So I, 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 in my um, spare time, whatever spare time I have, um, part of what I do is run a, um, a bibliophiles club called the John Russell Bartlett Society. And um, I will plug a local bookstore that is helping us, uh, Seller Stories, downtown. Um, they actually are selling books for our benefit that have been donated for the cause. And so I sometimes buy books to support my little nonprofit, and one of the re- most recent books that I bought that were donated uh, was uh, Percy Muir's um, book on book collecting, and it's uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but it was uh, published in 1944, um, and then there's a 1947 American edition, and I bought both of them. Um, but he was a famous uh, antiquarian bookseller, English, uh, and bibliographer, and um, I picked it up uh, with another stack of books and. I really enjoy, yeah, I, I have a lot of books about books and that's that's one of the things that I, I personally collect, so. And I don't think I bought any new books since the last time we asked this question. That's the, that's the librarian thing is I don't have to buy a lot of books to have access to a lot of books. So I think last, since last time we asked this question to guests, I don't, I think I've just been borrowing books and in, enjoying the library and our state, our state library system. Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, I, I know that uh, I, I'm a big fan of the Kindle as well. I mean, I have real books and books on the Kindle and or, you know, readers, whatever. And um, but I know also know that there's all, always this issue of uh, ebook purchases for libraries. And they're so hard. They're so much more expensive. Most people don't really realize this. I know you know this, uh, Taylor, and, may, and maybe Kelly, you do. But um, and so even sometimes when I'm going on to the to the library's website and it's uh there are two or three people that have it on hold um and i have to wait 
I'll just go ahead and buy it on Amazon or some other because I just can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I it was funny. I I think I might have talked about it on the show before, but my my uh my mom is a big e-reader person and she said for a while back she set up my grandmother with the Kindle and everything. And once she got her going with it, she's, you know, does great with it and buys her books, but then I recently like she made a library card. And so I set her up with Libby so that she could get books, uh, the eBooks for free. And she like, for a while, she was like telling me how much money she was saving. Like the first month that she was doing it, she was all like, I would have spent this much on books, but I didn't on eBooks, but I didn't because of Libby. And I'm like, I'm so glad that you're enjoying it. Um, so yeah, it's a great way to get books and eBooks, but sometimes the lines are long for the eBooks. So sometimes you just got to go ahead and, and buy that uh, copy, but hopefully you enjoy it and it's worth it. So before we wrap up, uh, do either of you want to kind of like plug how people can get in touch with you um, and Kelly plug your store? Yeah, sure. Um, so my store is in downtown Wakefield. It's called Rarities Books and Bindery. Uh, it's at 396 Main Street. It's right next to Calf Bar. Um, we actually have double doors inside that open up so you can walk back and forth between the two, get your coffee, your tea, and your book. Um, we're there Tuesday and Sunday. I had to think about how to remember my hours for a minute there because I just changed them. Uh, Sundays and Tuesdays from 9.30 to 2 and Friday, uh, Thursdays through Saturdays from 9.30 to 3. Um, and you can always just shoot an email to raritiesbindery at gmail.com. Get in touch with me that way or raritiesonline.com. Get in touch with the website. Great. Yeah, and for me, um, you can just go to rihs.org. That stands for Rhode Island Historical Society.org. Um, we have four locations. We, have, we run the John Brown House Museum in Providence. We have the Research Library, the Robinson Research Center, corner of Hope and Power Street. Our main um, headquarters is at 110 Benevolent Street in the Aldrich House. And we also run the Museum of Work and Culture up in Woonsocket. Fantastic. So thank you both for joining me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to reach out to us here at Downtime, you can do that by shooting us an email at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And now you can reach out to us via social media with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. Uh, if you're feeling generous, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. And thank you again for listening. This has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. much of that Dave you're going to keep to make this uh coherent <laughs> conversation but I'm totally fine if you keep all of it everyone should know that sometimes I make mistakes